Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 1 and going through verse 8. Mark writes, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. When God decided to give the world a written account of the life and ministry of Jesus, he saw fit not to give us just one, but actually gives us four wonderful portraits of the Lord Jesus. It's almost like you have a beautiful diamond held up in front of you and you keep turning it to look at its different facets and you see something different as you turn it again and again and again. And so God moved Matthew, he moved Mark, he moved Luke, and he moved John to give us four different portraits or perspectives concerning the work, the life, the ministry, the person of Jesus Christ. For example, Matthew is written to the Jews to inform them that Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and expectation. He is the Messiah King who comes from the line of Abraham and then more narrowly the line of David. Uh, Mark, as we're going to see, was written to a Roman audience. It's a fast-hitting, moving gospel that tells us that Jesus is the suffering servant of the Lord who ministers on our behalf and also gave his life as a ransom for many. We're going to see throughout our study that Mark very often connects his gospel in particular with the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Thirdly, Luke is written to Greeks, telling them that Jesus is the perfect Son of Man who came and He came to save and minister to all people. In fact, of the four Gospels, Luke has a greater interest in women uh, and a greater interest in Gentiles than do Matthew, Mark, or John. And then John is written to the world. And John is written to the world telling them that Jesus Christ is the fully human and also the fully divine Son of God. In other words, he is both fully God and fully man. And if you will place your faith and trust in him, you can be saved and you can receive the gift of eternal life. In fact, John has a very clear purpose statement at the end of his gospel where he tells us, I've written these things for one particular purpose, that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing you might receive eternal life. Well, we're going to give our attention to the shortest of the Gospels. It's only 16 chapters in comparison to Matthew, which is 28. 
uh, Luke, which is 24, and John, which is 21. And it's also the most uh, quick-moving gospel. In fact, uh, we're going to see in our study that there's a word that occurs again and again and again in Mark's gospel to move the narrative along. It's the word immediately. In fact, the word will occur 42 times in Mark's gospel. It only occurs something like 12 times in the rest of the whole New Testament. So so Mark is very interested in you and me seeing Jesus as a very active individual who's doing this and doing that and doing so very, very quickly. But also, because it is the shortest of the four gospels, uh, many Bible scholars have taken particular note of what they call the Markan omissions. That is, the things that we find in the other Gospels, but for some reason, Mark chooses not to include them. For example, there's no genealogy of Jesus like we find both in Matthew and Luke. Uh, There's no miraculous birth narrative. There's no mention of Bethlehem or the shepherds. There's no visit of the wise men. There's no information at all about his childhood at Nazareth. Uh, There's no story of Jesus visiting the temple as a boy. Uh, There's no evidence or no witness to or information about his growing in wisdom and stature. Uh, Unlike John, there is no reference to his preexistence. There's no Sermon on the Mount. And there are really no lengthy discourses and very few parables in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is interested in what Jesus does, what Jesus performs. And so it is known in many ways as the Gospel of Action. Now, if we were studying any particular book, it would always be good to step back and say, well, you know what? What is the purpose of this book? What's its theme? Uh, If we were to try to craft a, a thesis statement for a book, which is a good thing to do, What would happen if we applied that to Mark? Well, here's what I think we could say about Mark's gospel. Mark recorded in rapid fire succession specific events from the life and ministry of Jesus to prove to a Roman audience that he is the Christ, the Son of God who served, suffered, died, and rose again as the suffering servant of the Lord depicted in the prophet Isaiah. And I think that indeed does capture for us what Mark is trying to do in the 16 chapters of his particular gospel. Now, as we prepare to look at these eight verses tonight, I think there are two questions that we ought to raise and answer before we begin walking through the text. Uh, First question is, who wrote the gospel? Because the fact is, if you look at all four gospels in their text, they're all anonymous. Uh, Matthew does not say in his gospel that he wrote it. Mark doesn't, Luke doesn't, and John doesn't. Now, it is true that in the early church, the titles, according to Matthew, according to Mark, according to Luke, according to John, got attached uh, very early. But they are not actually a part of the autographs or the uh, original writings of these four Gospels. And so we need to ask, first of all, uh, who wrote it and why do people believe it was Mark? Second question is, how do we approach the Gospels? In other words, are there maybe some presuppositions or some particular perspectives we need to have in mind as we begin to walk through this particular gospel? Well, first of all, who wrote the gospel? Well, I make uh, five quick observations for you. The early church, first, was unanimous that a man named John Mark was 
the author. And by the way, that's rather significant because John Mark was not all that popular in the early church. I mean, he was a, a, a significant figure on a certain level, but certainly not on the level of one of the apostles. And so the fact that John Mark's name gets attached to this gospel, I think, is itself significant evidence that he was indeed the author of the book. Uh, he was the uh, son of a woman named Mary. And Mary's home, we learn from Acts chapter 12 and verse 12, was a place where the early church would often gather as they would come together for worship and for prayer. Uh, the Hebrew name John, it is a Hebrew name, means God's gift. Uh, the name Mark is a Roman name, and it means polite or shining. And so you put it together, you have both his Roman and his uh, Hebrew uh, name. And so John Mark is the name attached to this book. Interestingly, as I mentioned a moment ago, he's never mentioned by name in the book, but very, very, very interestingly. In chapter 14, verse 51 and 52, Jesus is arrested. And there is someone that is watching kind of in the shadows, and they see him, and they reach out and grab his robe and yank it off, and he says, this young boy had to run away naked. Now, that story's not in Matthew. That story's not in Luke. That story's not in John. In fact, that particular story adds nothing of theological importance to the Bible at all. If it wasn't there, we wouldn't lose a thing. So why in the world would someone talk about a young lad whose clothes got yanked off and he ran away scared and naked? Well, if it was Mark, if it was John Mark, I suspect it made an impression upon him. I think that was something that uh, he never got away from, he never forgot. And so, again, just that little uh, incident that's recorded there, again, would give evidence internally that perhaps John Mark was the author. John Mark, we also know, was the cousin of a man named Barnabas. Barnabas, as you know, the name itself means son of encouragement. He participated with Paul on the first missionary journey. And uh, because Barnabas had confidence in John Mark, and evidently Paul did too at the time, he said, sure, bring him on. But unfortunately, John Mark was not yet ready for the mission field. And so somewhere along that first missionary journey, uh, he, he goes back home. So later, when uh, Paul and Barnabas returned to Jerusalem, and they speak at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. At the end of chapter 15, uh, Paul says, hey, uh, we need to make another journey. And we need to go back and visit some of the churches that we planted and some of the cities that we uh, attended and then later move on. And uh, Barnabas says, great idea. Let's make sure to take John Mark. And Paul says, not in this lifetime. Uh, I think if we could paraphrase in our uh, language today, Paul said he's a wimp. He, he's not got the stuff of a missionary. He, he's a coward. Uh, he's not tough enough. And so he is not going with us. And the Bible says the contention between Paul and Barnabas was so great, they divided. And so uh, Barnabas did take John Mark. And Paul picked up a new companion by the name of Silas. And so I would argue this way. Uh, God brought it out, uh, brought out of it good because now instead of having one missionary team, you've got two missionary teams. Of course, the question that I'm often asked and people will often speculate is, well, who was right? Was Barnabas right or was Paul right? And the fact is, maybe both of them were right. But if you had to get me to put my, uh, uh, my uh, cards on the table... Uh, if a gun was to my head, I would have to tell you I think that uh, Barnabas was right. Because in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is in Rome in prison. He is facing execution. 
He knows his time is not long. And so he pleads with um, Timothy to come see him. And he says, and bring John Mark, for he is profitable to me. And so perhaps he did not uh, stand the test on the first missionary journey, but over time he would grow and mature and demonstrate his value to the work of the local church. Then finally, the early church was again unanimous that Mark, John Mark, was the interpreter of Peter. In other words, when you look at any book of the New Testament, every single one of them was written either by an apostle or a close associate of an apostle. In fact, I believe that was one of the criteria for which a book was deemed canonical, which deemed that it was inspired scripture that the church should embrace and that the church should believe. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, Matthew was a, uh, an apostle. Uh, Luke was a close associate of Paul. John was an apostle. Peter was an apostle. James was and Jude was half-brothers of our Lord. Uh, the only book that we're not certain of is Hebrews, and that's because it's anonymous. And again, all the major candidates for Hebrews are people like Paul or Luke or Barnabas or Apollos or John Mark. And so Mark was associated with Peter. And the fact is, when it comes to describing particular uh, eyewitness events, even though Mark is the shortest gospel, it often has the most material and gives the most vivid descriptions, which would make perfectly good sense if Peter with all of his emotion, was quickly recounting for John Mark exactly how a particular event unfolded in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you put all that together, and I think you are on good ground in affirming that this gospel was indeed written by the traditional name attached to it, the man John Mark. But then a second question. What are some basic presuppositions concerning our Gospels with which we should operate as we walk through any of them, but particularly the 16 chapters of Mark? And again, five quick observations before we move to the text. Number one, they are historical and not mythological accounts. In other words, what they record really did happen. Did Jesus really raise a little girl from the dead? Yes. Did he really calm the storm? Yes. Did he really feed the 5,000, the 4,000? Yes. And did he himself really, truly rise from the dead? Yes. These are not fairy tales. They're not mythological. As Peter even says in his uh, uh, epistle, we did not follow cunningly devised fables. And he actually uses the word mythoi. We get our word myths from it. And so Peter himself says, no, we did not follow myths. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And in that instance, he's actually talking about the transfiguration, which, again, we would say is not some type of mythological account about some pseudo-Greek or Roman god. No, these things really did occur. Secondly, because the Gospels are written by four different men, the style, the content, etc., will vary. However, because they were inspired by God, all that they wrote will be true. Thirdly, the Gospels are more than uh, thematic biographical studies. They are Gospels. And you need to understand that Gospels, by their very nature, are not biographies, certainly not like biographies in the modern sense. Really, I like to use the phrase, they are either theological histories or historical theologies. In other words, they're recording for us actual history 
But the authors are giving us a theological understanding of what was the significance of the events as they were occurring and taking place in the life and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number four. Portions of the Gospels may be condensed. Uh, They give a snapshot. We're going to see uh, next week that whereas uh, Matthew gives us 11 verses uh, when it comes to talking about the temptation of our Lord in the wilderness, uh, and Luke gives us 13 verses to talk about our Lord's temptation in the wilderness, Mark gives us two, just two. Uh, verse 12 and verse 13. He's in and out, boom, just like that. And so sometimes one gospel writer will expand an account while another gospel writer will condense it. Sometimes they simply summarize uh, an event or a teaching that is taking place. And so it's seldom that they would be exhaustive telling us everything when they record a particular event. And then fifthly, the gospels are more concerned about Christ's death than his life. Indeed, over one-fourth and really almost a third of each of the Gospels is dedicated to the final week of our Lord's life. In fact, uh, Mark, when you hit Mark chapter 11, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, six chapters all deal with the final week of his life. That's why one scholar said of Mark and the other Gospels, but especially Mark, it is a passion narrative talking about his suffering. And it happens to have in front of it an extended introduction. And so with that as sort of some background material for our study tonight, what can we learn from the first eight verses concerning the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Well, number one, we can trust God to keep His promise. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse 39, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they that testify of me. In other words, God had promised to send a Savior, a Deliverer. God had promised to send His Anointed One, the Messiah. And what Mark does is simply tells us the time is right. The time has arrived. He has appeared, and furthermore... The one who would announce his arrival has also appeared as well. And Mark will take a few verses to tell us about this wonderful man called John the Baptist. Now, verses 1 through 4 actually could be read as a single sentence in the original text. And so it really holds together as one large self-contained thought. And so as he's introducing these two important individuals, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, and John the Baptist, he tells us that God can be trusted to keep his promises. First of all, God kept his word to send the Messiah. That's the theme of verse 1. This is the the beginning. You immediately, I would think, uh, would uh, reflect upon Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created In my way, uh, as I was studying, uh, John 1-1 came to mind. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so here's another beginning in the Bible. But this is the beginning of Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God, and is the beginning of the gospel about Him. And so verse 1, as we're going to see, serves as an introduction to the first 15 verses of chapter 1, but in a real sense. Verse 1 is the theme of the whole book. In other words, if you had to boil it down in one verse as to what the Gospel of Mark is about, it is about Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God, and here is the good news about 
him. This is the beginning of the gospel. It's the Greek word euangelion. Uh, it literally means good news or, or good tidings. And interesting is the point of history, not until the mid-second century will the word gospel be attached to these first four books. In other words, they officially are not called gospels. In fact, early, they were called the memoirs of the apostles. But then by the middle of the second century, this word gospel, good news, got attached to each of them. And it would become the technical name then for our four gospels. That's not how Mark is using it here. Mark is here saying, look, something has happened. There's a new day, a new dawning. And there is some good news that God is bringing concerning Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the Son of God. Now, John MacArthur points out that to a Roman who had no background in the Jewish faith, he would have immediately thought of, oh, he's announcing the arrival of a dignitary. And many times a gospel message announced the arrival of a king. Well, in a sense, that would be completely consistent with what Mark is saying here as well. But I think Mark is thinking in a Old Testament context. He's thinking in light of redemptive history. And his point is, God who promised a coming deliverer, a coming Messiah, a coming Savior, God who promised good news in the Old Testament, is now delivering on his promise with the good news of this one who has arrived. What does he say of him? He is Jesus the Christ. He is the Son of God. Jesus is the Greek name for the Hebrew, Joshua. It means Yahweh or Jehovah is salvation. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word, Messiah. It means the anointed one. In the Old Testament, the king would be anointed, the priest would be anointed, the prophet would be anointed. Of course, we learn from the New Testament, Jesus fulfills all offices of prophet, priest, and king. But perhaps the most crucial thing you find in verse 1 is that last phrase, the Son of God. This is crucial. Uh, this is critical. Uh, again, this takes our Christology to a much higher level. Uh, my colleague and friend for many years was a man named Bob Stein who taught New Testament uh, at Bethel Theological Se Seminary. And then he came to Southern for a number of years, an absolutely gifted, brilliant New Testament scholar. In fact, as I'm working through the Gospel of Mark, I'm using his commentary that's about a thousand pages. And so I'm working my way through that monster week after week after week. Well, he made this very, I think, helpful statement. Son of God reveals Jesus' unique and un paralleled relationship with God. It is the favorite title of Mark for identifying Jesus. In fact, you see it in chapter 1, verse 11, chapter 1, verse 24, chapter 3, verse 11, chapter 5, verse 7, chapter 9, verse 7, chapter 12, verse 6, chapter 13, verse 32, chapter 14, verses 61 and 62, and chapter 15, verse 39. And then Dr. Stein says this, and... When Mark was written, it conveyed to the Christian community the idea of both pre-existence, he's always been, and deity, he is indeed God. In fact, if you were to stop for a moment, which we're going to, and you were to quickly survey the titles of Jesus just in the Gospel of Mark alone, you must reach an inescapable conclusion. Mark is teaching us that he is God. There are ten of them. He is called Jesus, Son of the Most High God, in chapter 5, verse 7. He is called Jesus, the Son of David, in chapter 10, verse 47 and 48. 
He is called the Christ in 1 1, 8 29, 9 41, and 12 35. He is called Christ, the Son of the Blessed, in chapter 14, verse 61. He is called Christ, King of Israel, in chapter 15, verse 32. And since you've got notes, put a star by number six. Because though Son of God may be Mark's favorite title for Jesus, Jesus' favorite title for himself is Son of Man. And you can see there it occurs one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Times in these 16 chapters. He is also called the Holy One of God in chapter 1, verse 24. Lord of the Sabbath in chapter 2, verse 28. Lord in a number of occasions, and also He is called the King of the Jews. But, Son of God carries the whole understanding of the coming one to a much higher and loftier level. Well, if you just track out the crucial occurrences of Son of God in particular, you will see that they appear at very significant places in Mark's gospel. But even more interesting to me, it's fascinating who are, who the ones are who are confessing that He is the Son of God. And I note nine of them for you very quickly. First, Mark 1, 1, He is Son of God, said by Mark. Chapter 1, verse 11, He is the beloved Son, said by God the Father. In Mark 3.11, he is the Son of God. This is said to be true by demons. Chapter 5, verse 7, he is Jesus, Son of the Most High God, again said by the demons. Chapter 9, verse 7, he is the Beloved Son by God the Father. In Mark 12.6, he is uh, the one Son whom he loved, which Jesus applies to himself in a parable. Mark 13.3, he is the Son said by Jesus himself. Mark 14.61 and 62, he is said to be the Son of the Blessed One by the High Priest, though it is done in a uh, derogatory manner. And then finally, in Mark 15.39, he is Son of God. And there you find it on the lips of a Roman centurion. Very interesting, isn't it? You never find the disciples calling him the Son of God. The demons get it right. A Roman centurion gets it right. But for some reason, you never find the disciples in Mark's gospel getting it right. In fact, I don't think they got it right until after his resurrection. Several people have noted that Mark's gospel has this really interesting unfolding identity of Jesus that can kind of be uh, pigeonholed or, or marked at uh, four different strategic places. Chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 29. Chapter 15, verse 39. And also adding in the confession of the high priest in chapter 14, verse 61 and 62. You say, what do you mean? Well, first of all, in chapter 1, verse 1. This is the beginning of the gospel of Christ, uh, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, this is the beginning of Jesus, who is the Christ. Well, isn't it interesting? Halfway through the book, look at what Peter says. Chapter 8, verse 29, he said to them, Jesus is speaking, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Remember, I talked a moment ago about sometimes the Gospels in certain places will condense or summarize. We all know, don't we, from Matthew chapter 16 that Peter said, you're the Christ, the what? Son of the living God. Mark leaves that out. He just condenses it. You're the Christ. Then you have in chapter 14, verse 61 and 62, what the nation said in the person of the high priest. Then the high priest asked him, saying to him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. 
And then chapter 15, verse 39, on the lips of a Gentile, Greek, Roman centurion. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. So you see, here's how the gospel unfolds. Mark tells in chapter 1, verse 1, I'm going to tell you the story or the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God. Halfway through the gospel, on the lips of a Jew, you are the Christ. At the end of the gospel, on the lips of a Roman, you are the Son of God. He proves his thesis both through the mouth and confession of a Jew, Peter, and through the mouth and the confession of a Roman centurion. And so he demonstrates that he indeed fulfills the thesis statement of his gospel found in chapter 1, verse 1. Indeed, God kept his word to send the Messiah. But now secondly, God also kept his word to send his forerunner, verse 2. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John came, baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now, verses 2 and 3 are interesting. They are what we could say is a conflation, or maybe you don't like that word, all right, a composite. Maybe you don't like that word, okay, a fusing of three texts, which was a very common practice in the ancient world. He, he brings together three texts in one place, and what he does is not make a mistake. If you were to pick up a liberal commentary, they would say something along the lines, well, actually, this quote is dominated by Malachi chapter 3, and uh, Mark made a mistake and attributes it to uh, the prophet uh, Isaiah. Well, actually, what he does is he cites the most important individual of the three quotes. You say, well, where do these three quotes come from? Well, they come from, first of all, Exodus 23.20. Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 43. Now, you've got those cited, but let me just read them for you. Don't turn there. Just listen. Exodus 23.20. Behold, I send an angel, could be messenger. I send a messenger before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Isaiah 43, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And so what he simply does is he combines the exodus Malachi and Isaiah passages, and he simply cites in some uh, manuscripts the most significant of the three, and that clearly would be Isaiah. It's interesting to note this is the only place in Mark's gospel where he introduces an Old Testament quotation in this manner. He's much different in that regard than, say, what we find in Matthew. Furthermore, he says, as it is written, which is a perfect tense verb, which means it stands written. Okay, Mark, you bring these three quotes together, Exodus, Malachi, Isaiah, what stands written? Five things. Number one, God will send his messenger. Number two, the messenger will prepare the way. He will make the road ready before you, before the Messiah. 
Number three, he will be a loud voice proclaiming his message. Number four, he will do this where God has continually met his people, calling them to repentance, the wilderness. In fact, I had missed this until I began my study again, but the theme of the wilderness is very prominent in the Gospel of Mark, and in particular, Mark is drawing some analogies to a previous time when God's people were in the wilderness, that being, of course, the Exodus period. And so we're going to see that there's a number of common uh, parallels between Jesus and Moses, uh, Jesus and, and Joshua, Jesus and the nation of Israel. And so once more, God is doing business with his people where? In a major metropolitan area? No. He's doing it out in the desert near a little small river, and it is a little small, it looks like a creek in Georgia, called the Jordan River. Fourthly, or fifthly, his message is simple and clear. Prepare, it's an imperative. It even has the idea of the giving of a military command. Prepare the roads, level the roads, fill in the potholes, make them presentable and safe, for the King, the Lord, is coming. And he's simply picking up on the fact that if a great dignitary was coming to your town... You would send out the work crews and you would make sure, especially if he's coming in a chariot, as a king would, that the roads need to be smoothed out. Uh, the rocks need to be removed. If there's some real bad holes that need to be filled in, then we'll take care of that as well. You need to prepare things. And, of course, the, the metaphor is clear. John is preparing the way, not literally by filling in dirt. John is preparing the way by preaching a message and practicing a baptism of repentance. And so verse 4, in a very simple way, summarizes his ministry and his message. He's baptizing in the wilderness at the Jordan. Think in terms of a new crossing of the Jordan. We've got a, a new exodus going on here, a much better one than the first one. And he is also preaching a message of of repentance. If they will repent, confess their sins, they will actually move into, spiritually speaking, as Hebrews says, a land of rest. They're going to move into a better and a new promised land. We can trust God to keep His promises. But now, number two, we can also trust God to send His preachers. Picking up again on verse 4, John came baptizing. You ought to mark that word baptizing. It occurs twice there in verse 4. Again in verse 5. Two more times in verse 8. And a sixth time in verse 9. And so the idea of baptizing is very important. And I think uh, you'll see why in just a moment. The sending of John the Baptist, John the baptizer, was a fulfillment of biblical prophecy, signaling a turning point and a new day in redemptive history. You say, why is he called John the Baptist? Because he was baptized. It's not because he was the first Baptist. Technically, it is John the Baptizer. You say, well, was it the case that no one had ever baptized before? It was the case that no one had ever baptized Jews before. If you and I had been alive in the first century, and we had been interested in joining ourselves to the Hebrew faith, it would not have been uncommon for us to go through a baptism that would identify us with the covenant nation of Israel. But we have no record at all of anyone baptizing Hebrew people until John. And so that's why they called him John 
the baptizer because he was doing something that no one had ever done before. Now, John is, is so much fun. Uh, he is a, a strange individual. In fact, you say, well, he's strange by our standards. He was strange by their standards, too. I mean, you just look at where he lived and you look at how he's described. Uh, Chuck Swindoll said, quote, we have here a profile of a strange evangelist. And I don't think you can readily disagree with that. But before I walk you through the verses very quickly as we move to close tonight, let me direct you. And I think you've got them in your notes, at least the three references. I'll read them to you. Would you listen to what was said by John and about John by Jesus? Here's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 15. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft garments are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, and here's that Isaiah Malachi conflation, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, now listen to this, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus like to conduct a, an interview with you very quickly. Um, of all the people you've ever known or heard about or that will ever come, since you're God, you know the past, the present, and the future, we, we just have one question that we'd like to ask you this evening. In your judgment, who is the greatest human being that's ever lived? And Jesus, without hesitation, that's easy. It was this crazy, wild-eyed prophet out by the Jordan River in the desert named John the Baptist. Wow. He only lived to be about 30, I know. He had his head cut off by an evil king, I know. He died alone, I know. He died in disgrace. Well, he did down here. But you ask me who the greatest man who's ever lived was, and when heaven renders the judgment, and by the way, that's the one that counts, his name is John the Baptist. Jesus goes on to say in that text, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, why would Jesus say John was so great? Well, here's what John said about himself in uh, John chapter 3, verse 30. Speaking of Jesus, he must increase. I must decrease. And then there's one other very interesting verse that, again, I think is very instructive for us tonight. It's found in John 10:41. Then many came to him, that is Jesus, and they said, John performed no miracles. But all the things that John spoke about this man were true. So think about it. John never did a single miracle. John said, I have to go down that someone else can go up. Jesus says he is the greatest man who ever lived. Now, very quickly, two lessons we learned from John and we'll be through. First of all, like John, we should be faithful. The text is kind of striking in its brevity. John came. He just suddenly appeared in the wilderness, and he, he's introduced in the same kind of way by Mark. It's almost like, bam, there he is. He's preaching this baptism of repentance. He, he's preaching a message clearly given to him by God. He's baptizing, which is an act of immersion, and it was, again, so unique uh, for him to baptize Jewish persons. They call him John the, the baptizer. 
Of course, the word repentance means to turn, to turn away from your sin so that there's now a change of mind resulting in a change of action. Verse 5 tells us that people came to him from everywhere. Not surprising that people came from the Judean hillside, but it is surprising that people came from Jerusalem. Uh, the wealthy, the, the aristocracy. We even learn from other Gospels that the priest came out to investigate and to interrogate him as well. As one man said, rich and poor, rural and urban, they all responded to the preaching of John. They responded, the text says, repenting. They responded confessing, and they responded by being baptized. And so John was faithful to the brief but important assignment that God was given, that he was given by God. Then finally, John sets for us another example. Like him, we need to be humble. Again, let me quote Chuck Swindoll before we walk through these final three verses. Our tendency is to want to make John's character like that of a modern man. That will not work. He was not the kind of man to be a presidential cabinet member, but rather he was a wandering preacher who lived in the wilderness. God chose a forerunner entirely different from the type we would have picked. And Mark helps us take a straight and honest look at this man. Not only does he appear unusual by today's standards, he was unusual by the standards of his own day. He had no credentials. He had not studied in a formal school. Unlike Paul, he never sat at the feet of a rabbi or a Pharisee. He wore funny clothes. He ate weird food. And early in life, he moved out and lived in the desert. I mean, the man was a freak. The man was a weirdo. At least by... The world. Hey, if you and I had been alive and we'd been told about this guy that's out there eating bugs and honey and in a fur coat and out there living in dirt, you'd say that guy needs to be in therapy. Man, he needs some drugs. I mean, can't they give him some Ritalin or something? I mean, he, he needs a little assistance. And, and no, he was exactly who and where God wanted him to be. You know, sometimes God puts us in places that don't make a whole lot of sense to the world. But they make a whole lot of sense to God. Humble in appearance, he wore a cameled hair garment with a leather belt. But that sounds just like a prophet in the Old Testament named Elijah. Go see Second Kings chapter 1, verse 8. Humble in home, he lived in the desert. Humble in diet, he ate locusts. Now, lest ye freak out, according to Leviticus eleven twenty-two, locusts were considered to be clean animals. Maybe not tasty animals, but then he was dipping those rascals in honey, so that was probably overcoming the taste of them. And so as one scholar said, uh, whatever we want to say about his diet, he was getting that which was high in protein and minerals. I'll take their word for it. I don't intend to test it out myself. Humble in message, look at verse 7. A greater than I is coming. He is so great. I'm not worthy to do what only a Gentile slave would do. You see that phrase there? I'm not worthy to unloose or to stoop down and loose his sandal strap. You could not ask a Jewish slave to do that. You could ask a Gentile dog to do it. But a Jew would not ask another Jew to stoop that low. And John says, I'm not even worthy to do that. 
My baptism, he says in verse 8, is outward in water, a symbol. But his baptism will be inward with fire. It will be the real thing. So we can say it like this. The one who is coming is mightier than I am. The one who is coming is more worthy than I am. The one who is coming is more powerful than I am. I have touched your body with water, but he will touch your soul with the Holy Spirit. And bottom line, in terms of our application, John would say, you know, I know who I am in God's plan. And I know who he is in God's plan, too. And John, if he were alive tonight, would say to us, and don't you ever get the two confused. Make sure you keep Jesus where he belongs. And make sure you stay where you belong, too. I conclude. It did become an early Christian symbol to mark the tombs of believers who had died or to designate secret meeting places because of Roman persecution. It was sometimes signed in sand or perhaps even across one's chest to distinguish a friend from an enemy. It does capture beautifully the evangelistic intent of Jesus' ministry, and it nicely captured the essence of who Jesus was. And it also summarizes really quite well verse 1 of chapter 1 and the theme of Mark's gospel. I'm not talking about the cross. I'm talking about the fish. Uh, The Greek word for fish is ichthus. If you take those letters and form an acrostic, it's easy to come up with the following phrase, Jesu Christos Theos, Weos Soter. Jesu Christos Theos, Weos Soter. Or in English, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. And that's what is symbolized by the acrostic ichthus. It really is the essence of Mark's gospel. And it really does serve well as the essence of of the good news about Jesus, who is the Christ, Jesus, who is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for these eight verses. There's so much there. You, you read them initially, and you think there's not much, and then you realize, my goodness, we could spend hours and hours unwrapping uh, what you say in such quick, rapid-fire uh, verbiage about this one who is the promised Messiah, the very Son of God. And, Lord, we learn something about who you are, and we also learn something about who we are through the example of John the Baptist. And, Lord, I would pray in my own life tonight that, like John, in my service to King Jesus, I would be faithful and I would be humble, that I would decrease, that you might increase, and that, indeed, you could say of me, I was a faithful servant in the place and the position you sovereignly and providentially assigned to me. Lord, we're excited about walking through this gospel for many months. May we fall more in love with the King who is portrayed as the suffering servant of the Lord in these verses, even our Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. 
You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.